Fire. A woman can't survive by her own breath alone. She must know the voices of mountains. She must recognize the foreverness of blue sky. She must flow with the elusive bodies of night winds who will take her into herself. Look at me. I am not a separate woman. I am the continuance of blue sky. I am the throat of the mountains, a night wind who burns with every breath she takes. By Joy Harjo, from How We Became Human. Children gather around, come sit by the cannon fire. Come and join the conversation. Children gather around, if written works are your desire. Come and sit beside the flame of the cannon fire. Welcome back to our Joy Harjo continuation conversation. Conversation <laughs> continuation. We're recording this on the same day of the first Joy Harjo episode, so don't be confused. Um, we're lazy, so. We're also working on transitions. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Transitioning. We're new at this. Um, what did we do when we left off? Caitlin, what was your last thought? My last point when we left off was that listening to works like Joy Harjo and like other indigenous art- artists from basically any culture that has been colonized... Uh, is important because the dominant cultures that kind of force them out of their own spaces like to pretend that those indigenous cultures no longer exist or are have been fully assimilated, which isn't true. Isn't true. Yeah. Um, which, as we were trying to figure out an opening quote for this per- this episode, G actually said uh, asked if Joy Harjo was a witch and. G is a witch, so it's a pretty, uh, it was a question, uh, it's kind of a personal thing to announce, not that I'm saying it's not okay that you announce that, it's fine that you announce that, I'm fine with people knowing, but for some people it's a very personal thing to announce, and so she may not want us to know if she is or not, but I'm curious because of the way she phrases a lot of her stuff. I do not know if she personally identifies as a witch. I think she may not, because that is perceived a lot of the way, like the word, specifically the word witch is an English word and is used to describe people of European ancestry a lot. A lot, yeah. Um, But what I've read of her work, it does seem that she has a very spiritual connection to the land and to a more, maybe not magical, maybe not the right word word to use, but something spiritual spiritual and bigger than the physical world we live in. So there is a sense of... Mystic, intentional mysticism, I think, to the way that yeah. she writes. Um, I got this quote off of uh, Poetry Foundation. It was in an interview. Um, Harjo said herself, I agree with Guide that, uh, Guide is a name, um, that most of what is created is beyond us, is from that source of utter creation, the creator or God. We are technicians here on Earth but also co-creators. I'm still amazed, and I still say, after writing poetry for all this time, and now music, that ultimately humans have a small hand in it. We serve it, 
We have to put ourselves in the way of it and get out of the way of ourselves. And we have to hone our craft so that the form in which we hold our poems, our songs, in attracts the best. And she also, in her introduction to how we became human, she says, All of these poems are an offering to the source of poetry. We must feed the spirit of poetry, of song-making, just as we feed our bodies to give them energy or feed our minds with thoughts. And um, so with that way of thinking, it's, it becomes a, a question of, of kind of how, how people place themselves in the world. And um, some people might uh, listen to those phrasings and say that she is a witch. And some people might say she's just herself. <laughs> and it's just how she interacts with, with the natural world and with her subconscious and consciousness. I really like how she says that, and I really liked that the because she spoke a lot about, um, and I don't have it to hand because I don't think we brought it, and I'm really mad. Um, I might re-record it actually later and stick it in, in which case this will be edited out. But there's a quote in her one of her memoirs, Crazy Brave, that she read when we saw her live, and it talks about her approach to creating, and I really am going to record it when we get home, because I have to, because I cannot remember the specifics enough enough to talk about it. I was going to say, but it is at home. I, I left it there. When I lived in Taliqua, I used to walk through town, up and down hills, along the creek, by storefronts filled with items I had no money to buy. As I walked, I could hear my abandoned dreams making a racket in my soul. They urged me out the door or up in the night so they could speak to me. They wanted form, line, story, and melody and did not understand why I had made this unnecessary detour. There were flashes of inspiration and joy, but this wasn't enough to sustain the need for artistic expression. I believe that if you do not answer the noise and urgency of your gifts, they will turn on you, or drag you down with their immense sadness at being abandoned. But that was one of the things that I love about her, is that Western culture prizes individual artists, but it has a tendency to dismiss art as being, especially these days, as being unimportant in comparison to STEM and finance and economics and all all of these very capitalist ideas. Shocking. But uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about her, both in her writing and also when I saw her live, is that she does put forward a tradition of valuing the spiritual and the spiritual being innately connected to art. And I think personally, I'm not a very spirit, like I'm not a very religious person at all in any sense. And I don't really follow a spiritual philosophy. I don't think, but that's the closest I have is the belief in creativity and the belief in art. So something like that really sp- speaks to me, and I think it is a testament to her... Blah, blah, my thought went away. <laughs> something like that really speaks to me, and I think it's important to hear those narratives and to hear people talking about art that way, as opposed to the kind of running trend of linking what you want to do to capitalism with people being like, oh, if you're an English major, you'll never get a job. Or, oh, if you're a fine arts major, you'll never get a job. Or if you don't go to college and you decide you want to make art, you'll never make money off of it. You know that 
whenever I tell people that I was a psychology major, that look, mm-hmm. that almost pitying, that um, it's an almost pitying kind of sarcastic look. It pisses me off. I hate that look. It's that. Yes. That's what you're talking about. And like some of our listeners are not going to relate to that, but I bet a lot of you guys will relate to that because it's just ridiculous. And it is something that I think is also linked to stereotypes about specifically indigenous American people. I don't know enough about indigenous peoples in other, I mean, I don't even know that much about indigenous people here, but I know more about them than say people in other countries. Right. Um, but I think it is a connected stereotype is, oh, native peoples are so, it's almost mocking the way that people talk about the link between native people's spiritual culture and us. Like they, there's a lot of dismissiveness about the way that just the the things that I've read in Joy Harjo, there's a lot of dismissiveness that I've seen in our culture about the things, maybe not her specifically, but the way that she talks about how she is connected to the world and she is connected to the universe and she is connected to the wholeness of it. It's all the same to her. And that's something that is... You've listened to me rant about this before. Yes. Um, and that's very, it's something that is dismissed, but I think it's something very important and something that the Western culture doesn't, that Western culture doesn't really appreciate in the way that it should at all, ever. Well, Um, it was because, um, people found strength in that belief, right? And so when people came to colonize, hit them where it hurts, you delegitimize how they see power Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and by doing that you quote-unquote win and joy harjo is a response as herself is a response to that saying you can't take away what i see powerful because i know how powerful i am i i know how connected i am and you are so naive and so ignorant without calling people out she does this so skillfully but she's like don't touch me. Don't take this away from me. You can't. I don't give you that. Mm-hmm. I can't give you that. And I think the way she does it without calling people out is she never really makes it about the colonizer. Yeah. Like, she doesn't let it be about the colonizer. She's about, this is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what is powerful to me. And by saying what is powerful to her without even, like, paying credence to the idea of what somebody else's power structure is, is she reinforces that power. It's the same idea of if you say you're cool, you're not cool. Um, I'm cool. <laughs> uh, but it's that same idea. Are you of, calling me out? <laughs> a little bit. No, uh, it's, be- it's the idea of if you base who you are on a response to somebody else, then you are still letting them control you. And she doesn't allow for that. And it is fantastic. <laughs> Okay, so not how cool, not how I'm cool, though. Because <laughs> I know I'm cool, but it's not like, I don't care. Um, she, she's so phenomenal um, in, in how she, um, as a fully realized person and as someone who is still growing, I think she wouldn't consider herself uh, finished by any means. Any and, smart person wouldn't consider themselves finished. Right, mm-hmm. and so... She, in her language and how she associates, and in the fact that she is as recognized as she is by the Academy, she forces 
people who live within a colonized mindset and in a colonizer mindset to respect her because she doesn't allow them to change her narrative to a way that would benefit their way of telling the story. She owns her story absolutely, irrevocably, completely owns who she is, what she's been through, and how she walks through the world. And people who interview her, the Academy that gives her awards, publishers that uh, get her um, books out to the public, they have to follow the path that she sets. And I feel like we said the word forced a couple of times. And in terms of forced respect, forced respect comes in two versions. The bad version, which is respect me or there will be some kind of retribution. It's respect me or I won't treat you like a human. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, hers is more like she creates her... It's not forced in a she is forcing. It is the idea of like universal forces. Like she's like gravity. You can say that she's not there, but she's there. Um, Like, there is no... The way that she presents herself, there is absolutely no other way that she could be. There's no way she could... You can't help but. Right, you can't help but. There's no other way that you could present her because there is no way that she allows herself to be presented other than what she is. It's like, you could say that the sky is fuchsia. The sky will not be fuchsia just because you say it's fuchsia. It's always going to be what it is. The gravity is always going to be what it is. Joy Harjo is always going to be what she is, regardless of what is said about her or what any kind of, what a culture tries to fit her into, pigeonhole her into. Yeah. I would like to say that there's someone, uh, Leslie Ullman, I got this quote from Poetry Foundation as well. She noted, quote, like a magician, Harjo draws power from overwhelming circumstance and emotion by submitting to them, celebrating them, letting her voice and vision move in harmony with the ultimate laws of paradox and continual change. And Adrian Rich, the poet, says, I turn and return to Harjo's poetry for her breathtaking complex witness and for her world remaking language, precise, unsentimental, miraculous. Now, I don't particularly think that Harjo's voice is unsentimental, but I do agree that it is very precise and miraculous in how her stories are crafted. And it's just, I'm very happy that there are, are like poets that a lot of people would read that also find the power and, and respect uh, Harjo's work. Harjo actually also uh, respected Audre Lorde very deeply and um, in a lot of her books she drops names on instances of injustice that people of color have faced and she makes her readers know the histories that the media would rather you didn't know, mm-hmm. right? And so police brutality, we would think, is a new issue. We, meaning uh, white America, would think it's a new issue because it's being filmed and because Black Lives Matter came about. But Joy Harjo was writing poems naming uh, the names of people who lost their lives to police brutality mm-hmm. in the Southwest. And um, naming instances of uh, political action by marginalized groups, right? And, and drawing attention to that. And she was doing this um, in published works. She wasn't nearly as world-renowned as she is today, but I think... When was she doing this? 
Um, she was doing this... Like, during the Civil Rights Movement? Yeah, um... Civil Rights Movement was a bit early for her. She was... Yeah, she was a yeah, little bit later. Yeah, she was born during it. Yeah. Well, she, yeah, she was born in 51. I'm trying to find a poem that I saw while we were flipping through, because I want to read it because it talks... It really is a testament to her intersectionality and the way that she never really considers... Um, but I cannot... I think... I can't find it. Um, we thought of it being the intro to uh, intro to this episode, but it's a bit too long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to read two lines from it. They're non-consecutive. One comes from the beginning and one comes from near the end. But the two lines, which I think are really powerful and really speak to her kind of embracing of all of these marginalized groups, but also all of humanity as being humanity and being deserving of respect, um... And not being something to be disregarded or to be afraid of. It's called I Give You Back. I release you, my beautiful and terrible fear. I release you. You are my beloved and hated twin. But now I don't know you as myself. I release you with all the pain I would know at the death of my children. You are not my blood anymore. I am not afraid to be angry. I am not afraid to rejoice. I am not afraid to be black. I am not afraid to be white. I am not afraid to be hungry. I am not afraid to be full. I am not afraid to be hated. I am not afraid to be loved. But come here, fear. I am alive and you are so afraid of dying. And I think that that is such a powerful sentiment when thinking about intersectionality and the idea of giving up your fear and killing that fear so that you are not afraid to be anything else. Um, And so that the culture as a whole, I think, is not afraid of what it is to be something that is not the dominant culture. Because I think that there is a fear that is sort of programmed into everyone, whether you're black or white, because honestly, one of the reasons that some people are so hateful is because they are so afraid of what it might be to transgress what they consider to be socially acceptable or correct, is the idea even that transgressing social norms or transgressing what it means to be what society labels you as is a very frightening thing. But if you let go of that fear, you're able to understand yourself better. You're able to understand your neighbor and the people who are in this with you, even if it's not in the same way, because undergoing struggle as a black person or as a native person or as a Asian person or Latina X person, they're all going to be very different struggles, but being able to set aside your fear of people that are not like you, because there is a sense of being like, I think there is a sense of saying, I can't identify with that struggle because it's not mine. And yes, that's true, but that doesn't mean you should be afraid of combining the facing of those struggles. Right. It's, you shouldn't be afraid of having empathy though. Yes. Or sympathy even, if you can't have empathy, if you can't at all relate because empathy is saying I feel what you feel and so a white person couldn't necessarily have empathy for the struggle a specific struggle a black person goes through because they are black but they can still have sympathy for that struggle and they can still be a helping hand mm-hmm. and I that's one of my favorite things about Joy Harjo is I keep saying my favorite things about Joy Harjo that's not going away anytime soon she is one of my favorite <laughs> human beings on the planet Um, but is she kind of 
outright gives permission. And permission is not something that is needed necessarily. But if you aren't aware that you have permission, it's good to have you reminded. Slight segue, I have pretty bad generalized anxiety. And so sometimes I have to have my friends invite me to things that I set up because I'm a, I have issues. So like we will set up a time for us all to get together and then I will text a person right before it and say, hey, am I allowed to be here? It's almost like that is she extends that invitation to a culture full of anxiety. She says, hey, you might not know that you are allowed to sympathize or empathize with these people, but you are because sympathy and empathy are human. Are human and the only way that we can move past that and get o and give up our fear is by experiencing them and embracing them and saying i am not afraid to be with you in this space somebody else talk i'm trying to find thing. <laughs> um so i wish i could find this but um i can't find the title of the poem in here but it's mentioned uh in the back in a footnote and uh the reason that we're reading a lot of How We Became Human is because uh, Caitlin bought it for me for Joy Harjo to sign. And it's so also what we have here it's, right now. It's, only, <laughs> it's the only thing that we have at the moment. Um, even though Caitlin and I have read multiple, multiple volumes by Joy oh, Harjo yeah. and have seen multiple videos of her, um, we want to quote correctly. Uh, we don't necessarily want to always paraphrase. And so it's easier with a book in front of you. But um, there's a poem, I believe, that uh, Joy Harjo wrote called Anchorage, but she references and writes it for Audre Lorde. And so the fact that Joy Harjo was connected enough and, and respected and gave voice to Audre Lorde, who we will be talking about shortly, as well as gave voice to Sue um, Pueblo reservations and Hopi villages and, and just by putting her poetry in the world in a way that she's not going back to fear. She's not afraid of necessarily what a lot of people might consider dating themselves. Some people shy away from making uh, published works relevant to only that moment, thinking that it won't be universally relevant later on. Harjo put things in the day that she wrote about them and, and for the people that were active when she was writing. I, I believe as a way to um, continue documenting what was happening quietly uh, in America, right? So it's not, I don't believe that by saying I, I'm naming this place, by saying I'm naming this person who's dead, by saying I'm writing this for somebody in this moment, I believe that she's actually making herself more universal because the themes are there and you can see in record because Joy Harjo wrote them down how long these issues in America have uh, had an audience and actually have been talked about. They just haven't been given a microphone. And so the the idea that um, she dedicated a, a, a poem for... Phil Navasaya, which is, uh, she, she titled it for a Hopi silversmith because that's who he was. Like, she was uplifting as many people as she could because she's like, we're all on this world. We're all on this landmass and we all have stories to share. And we're all in this stupid journey together. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I, I'm, 
always in awe of of how she she writes she's written so many works um i like how we became human is like a culmination of picked and um uh chosen poems uh from various works that she published um which is a common thing for poets to do but she was consistently publishing not even just writing she was consistently publishing a new book of work whether it's prose or poetry or essays within five years of the one that was published before and she was doing this since the 1970s and this isn't even including any freelance work that she might have done in a magazine somewhere or in a journal like these are books that like she came out with on her own right and she's doing this she's publishing at the same time that she's creating music at the same time that she's active in the community and finding uh connections and having children and teaching students like she is non-stop and i don't know how she does it but like she she's and and still keeping like her her calmness around her i don't understand yeah, that's the kind of energy i don't have yeah she's just non-stop like her first uh, nine-poem chapbook was published in 1975. Her first full volume was published in 1980. Um, the next one was published in 1983, and then there was another that was published in 1989. Uh, in Mad Love and War was published in 1990, just a year after one. Uh, and that won the American Book Award and the Delmore Schwartz Memorial Award. And then her next book of poetry that was like... That's one of my favorites, uh, The Woman Who Fell From the Sky. That was published in 1994, and she's in an anthology in 1998. She wrote another book in 2000. She's still writing. She's releasing one in 2019, but, like, just looking at the release dates of all of her works, you're just like, how did you rest at all? Because they're, like, books of more than, you know, 70 poems. Like, these are, like, not... To laugh at uh, thickness books of poetry and prose and a memoir that was probably so difficult to to write and and to relive experiences and and then to also be aware enough to cultivate a community of you know native women and women of color who were also creating works and to make TV appearances like you need to write like, like not to tell her what to do but oh my goodness how how do you have that much energy as someone with um slight depression i don't understand um but i'm very happy that she has been as busy as she has and she's lived through very tumultuous times in america you know like being born during the civil rights movement's like heyday living through the native american civil rights movements that aren't as talked about as what we would commonly know as as the civil rights movement but there was a native american civil rights movement that was happening like right after and, if not well, at the it same time during as yeah. well it started during um a notable thing about uh, just to contextualize a little bit because we do i know for sure we have at least two non-american uh, uh, non i'd say non-american <laughs> listeners who are not american and I know that a lot of American people don't learn about Native history. Um, 
the reason. Shout out to Bill and Jack. <laughs> Hi, guys. Um, yeah, are you still killing Jack? Hmm? Are you still killing him? I am still killing Jack. Wow. I, I, <laughs> figuratively, figuratively, I'm killing his spirit. <laughs> okay. So. No context. No context. Okay. Jack so, will understand. So. Uh, so, Joy Harjo is considered to be part of something called the Native American Renaissance, which that name and that being that being considered a movement has a lot of people talking about it as to whether it should be called that, whether it should be considered its own movement, whether what the time frame for it would be. Um, but it's called the Native American Renaissance. That name was coined by a literary critic named Kenneth Lincoln in the 1983 book, Native American Renaissance. Um, and it's basically talking about a series of Native writers who were writing in the 1960s through the late 90s. And it's, this includes Joy Harjo, it includes other people who we will at some point talk about on this podcast and have on our list, like Leslie Marmon Silco, who is Laguna, uh, like Simon Jarrett's, but one of the things about this is it, this, one of the criticisms is that it implies that Native writers weren't producing work before this time period. Um, but just to contextualize that a little bit, they absolutely were, but they were starting to get this readership outside of their own very small spheres of influence because the civil rights movement was going on in the 60s. Um, there were, like G said, ongoing civil rights movements for Native peoples in addition to the more general civil rights movements and the more African-American specific civil rights struggles. And before the 1960s, there really wasn't an audience outside of Native peoples who were willing to listen to Native peoples. Mm -hmm. And so the, the reason that this Native American renaissance in very strong quotes was able to happen in this way and the way that reason it is referred to in this way is because Joy Harjo is one of a group of people who had a widespread audience not necessarily because of who they were because there were absolutely people before this period that were writing incredibly powerful incredibly significant work but because this was when people actually started listening to them outside of I, I guess the more widespread audiences actually started listening to them. Um, and there was definitely a sense of fetishization to it too, like, or maybe not fetishization, but the, oh, it's exotic. We're going to learn about these. That is fetishization. Yeah. yeah. Fetishization to it. But it's, which is one of the criticisms of it as well, but there is also a sense of even, which has been true for the Harlem Renaissance, it's been true for many, is this idea of as much as it is an unfortunate part of it, and as much as it shouldn't be a part of it, this fetishization did bring an audience that otherwise wouldn't listen to it, mm -hmm. which is the criticism of the Native American Renaissance, is that it's fetishistic, which is a wholly legitimate criticism. And I do not know enough about this to say one way or the other whether it well, should be the name of the thing. it's a criticism of the name of it. It's yes. not a criticism of the uh, creators. Right. Absolutely. It's not. Um, the other problem is that, like we, we've been talking about since the beginning of this podcast, the people that give these titles and the people who gave that this name and the people who, the scholars that they talk about who talk about this are all 
Western literary scholars, so most of them are white. Um, and most of them are, even if they're not white, they're not part of the cultures that they're talking about. So who gave them the right to give it that name? Ain't no one. Mm-hmm. This list of authors is a good list of authors, but it should be treated more as a reference point than a, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Than the canonical. The yeah. Canon than the rule, than the canonical rule. Um, yeah, and it's important to also realize that, like, this uh, renaissance of in mass publication from native authors in America had a very uh, similar relation to the civil rights movement that natives were, um, or indigenous indigenous Americans were, were going through and, and were on the streets fighting for, like the Harlem Renaissance did with its rights movement of its day. And unfortunately, you really only get that recognition from native authors recognizing it in their works saying like this was happening at this time they were wearing these kinds of jackets which has a political significance you get that when you read Craig Womack you get that when you get historical books uh, about indigenous populations and their struggles that were forced on them because um a lot of their struggles were stuff that they did not choose that um there were struggles that they were forced to live through because the people in power said you're going to deal with this and we're not going to help you and we're going to actually make this worse for you. And so it is a good starting point. There are, there are many, many, many lists of like book lists coming out for people who are interested in reading marginalized stories that reclaim themselves like Joy Harjo's writing does that are coming out from people in the literary circles. I think Literary Hub is a good reference for that. Mm -hmm. Um, but basically, you can just Google native authors I should be reading and there will be a list of 25 people that you never learned about in school, that you never read about in young adult literature classes, that you never heard about being um, offered up for the Newbery Prize or the Prince Prizes. And it's because they're marginalized and they don't have an audience and having an audience really does matter. And even those lists are often compiled. Like, they'll be drafting from different tribes. I was looking into indigenous tribes in Newfoundland because I was trying to find an excuse for us to go there and do a uh, and do a travel episode because I really want to go to Newfoundland. If you look by specific tribe, you will find so much work that lists like that won't even mention because as much as they're trying to publicize the work of native authors, there's only so much publicity for them to find as well. Mm -hmm. So if you go by tribe and uh, specific tribes too, because there are three different tribes of Cherokee natives. There are, th uh, there are... The tribes will basically... Right. Uh, they'll, they'll recognize their own. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so, um, if you want to find out more about native authors, the best place to go is to their tribe, because this is where they're from. This is their context, instead of looking from an outside context of people who think they are worthwhile, like the or like Kenneth Lincoln with the Native American Renaissance. Um, and you need to be comfortable with not being the center of the story, <laughs> white people, um, if you do choose to go on this endeavor, because they are going to speak truth to power that you hold. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you recognize that power, you still hold it. And it's okay <laughs> that that's happening. Yeah. Um, it's not an attack on your person, it's an attack on the system that you benefit from. 
Right. <laughs> there's this there's this thing that I read a couple of a couple of weeks ago that I keep like coming back to because I really like it is this thing that says recognizing your white privilege doesn't mean that you haven't struggled. It means that your skin color isn't one of the reasons that you're struggling. Um or your zip code or isn't your, one yeah, of the or reasons. culture or yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to un- contextualize a bit further why the literary skate changed for Native peoples in the early 60s, which is when this you started to see a lot more of people being heard, is that uh, from 1953 to 1964, the United States decided to mess with its the indigenous populations it had control over yet again by terminating the recognition of more than a hundred tribes and bands as sovereign dependent nations, which had a lot of negative impact in that it declared that these tribes and sovereign nations could not govern themselves. But what it also did is it reduced pressure, it reduced pressure of government organizations to target specific tribes because they didn't recognize them as tribes. So one of the things that happened is that there was a lot less you hear of a lot of, especially in the early 20th century, you hear a lot about uh, Board of Indian Affairs schools. And because there were no longer tr- reservations or tribes that these schools were being... Basically, it was deseg- native desegregation in a similar way to civil... In a similar way to African-American desegregation. Um, and the word being used is desegregation, not integration, because integration never happened. Mm-hmm. Um still hasn't happened. Nope. But the idea is that because they were no longer teaching them with a different curriculum, they still do, but like us they were no longer officially teaching them with a different curriculum, there was no longer a pressure to americanize indigenous populations in the same way. And so a lot of native I actually one of the things that I did when I worked on this project uh when I worked at my home university was work on the website for a basically history of a native school in this local tribe and one of the things that happened is that because there was no like when i feel like i'm rambling i am rambling it's fine my head's all over the place okay native schools prior to the 60s their teachers wouldn't let them speak their native languages and, and beca- when we say wouldn't let them we mean actively punish them oh, with yes. violence oh yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, punished them for speaking their native languages, did not let them c- interact with their communities in a way that they had traditionally been able to. In I that have they grandparents who have stories, yeah, yeah. Um, basically, the point of these schools was to quote unquote kill the Indian. And it was to kill the Indian in them. Yeah. Yeah. And so, while the intent of these, uh, it was actually called the House Concurrent Resolution One Hundred Eight, which was the one that uh, terminated recognition of these tribes, one of the things that came out of that was that because they didn't recognize them as tribes, they didn't have tribal schools, and so in that way, in a really roundabout, not at all good, but sort of good edge of the double-edged sword, it let them embrace their culture in a way that they had previously not been allowed to. So this resolution was passed in 1953. Joy Harjo was born in 1951. By the time that she was... And her Muscogee Creek Nation is still recognized, but that there was still this moving away from that type of education. 
she was being raised in a culture where she was allowed to know her traditions. Unfortunately, her parents and grandparents hadn't been, so there was no way for her to know. Yeah. If you want a, um, a really awesome author, we're going to actually talk about her absolutely at some point, who experienced more directly the cultural violence and the cultural genocide that happened from these schools. Read Zitkala Shah, who uh, went through this experience. I think in, in a more recent way than Joy Harjo was able to, um, thank goodness that we have both of their uh, versions of how to experience their identity. But there's a misconception that if you weren't, it, it, this is a misconception that bridges various different cultures, but it's the idea that like if we weren't actively killing you, if we weren't beating you, if we weren't being directly physically violent, then it, then was, it was a genocide. Yeah, yeah. But it was. But it was. Um, or an attempted, attempted genocide. Yeah. And uh, Zikala Shah went through a very uh, violent but non-physical genocide and the fact that like she lost her culture. She had to find a culture that worked for her after she realized who she was after experiencing the schools that erased her identity. I was born in 1996 and I've had to do that because my grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents weren't allowed their culture and so didn't learn it and so now I am having to learn it because I'm interested and because I don't have that fear I am having to learn it on my own without any help and it's 2018 so this 2019 yeah 2019 (laughs) so we are still having to deal with that today and there are millions of children today that are in the same boat and I think one of the wonderful things of Joy Harjo is how she's able to give a sense of that back even if you're not Muscogee Creek the language that she used the experiences that she's gone through her spirituality that she embraces and owns it shows a path forward and I want to end with this um, quote by her on how she creates her poetry. Um, This was from an interview in Winged Words, American Indian Writers Speak. She says, I begin with the seed of an emotion, a place, and then move from there. I no longer see the poem as an ending point, perhaps more the end of a journey, an often long journey that can begin years earlier, say with the blur of the memory of the sun on someone's cheek, a certain smell, an ache, and will culminate years later in a poem sifted through a point, a lake in my heart through which language must come. And I think that's a beautiful way of of saying how she creates poetry and and exactly how her poetry is grounded. Okay, uh, Cannon Fire Podcast was conceptualized by Caitlin Porter and created by Zoe Bergmeier-Sweat, Caitlin Porter, and me, G. Daly. We are the co-hosts and I am the editor. So me, G. I am the editor. <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. Uh, we'd like to thank C. Alan. Dree, throw the ball. Shut C. G. run. <laughs> oh my God. I would like to thank... C. G. edit. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> We would like to thank Alan Hardison for writing and recording our theme song, Brittany Barrel for our banner art, 
If you want to contact us, send us fan mail. If you want to suggest something for us, that would be fantastic. You can find us at canonfirepodcast.com. We have a contact us page there. You can also email us at canonfirepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on social media. On Twitter, you can find us at canonfirepod. On Facebook and Instagram, you can find us at canonfirepodcast. And please, please rate and review us on iTunes because that helps immensely with um, getting more, I guess, listenership. Is that what it would be called? Yeah. And we will have a Patreon up soon as well um, that will have bonus content and uh, extras and mini rants. So keep an eye out for that. Till next time, you guys are fantastic. We love you. And uh, keep in mind that Western grammar is a white colonial construct. See you next time. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.